Sometimes the Bible concerns us. There are, there are passages of Scripture that confuse us, that frustrate us, sometimes irritate us a little bit. There are passages of Scripture that we probably think to ourselves, why is that there? Why did that need to be there? I wish it weren't there. And even when we ask those questions, we're not, we're not questioning the authority of Scripture. That's the Word of God. We just have a level of confusion about some of the passages of Scripture, and particularly some of the Old Testament passages of Scripture. We, we probably can resonate with a little boy who, having been told some of the Old Testament stories that are difficult to grasp and some of the teachings of the Old Testament try to explain it by saying, well, that was before God was a Christian. And sometimes we feel that way, right? I mean, what's going on here? And, and it leads, it has led scholars through the years to wonder, to declare sometimes, that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New Testament. They have to be completely separate people because they're going in completely different directions. It's the confusion of some of the things in Scripture. And I wonder if maybe Psalm 83 might be one of those passages of Scripture that we scratch our heads about. This is a passage in which Israel's prayer is basically, God, take out our enemies. We don't know the context of this psalm. It's Psalm of Asaph, who was the worship leader of David. It could have been written during David's time. It could have been written by his descendants after that. There is no, there's no cultural context, a historical context to it. But it's a moment in which Israel is feeling vulnerable. They are surrounded by enemies. Verses uh, 5 through 8 talk about the variety of people, peoples, nations that are surrounding them. They've made a treaty and they're after Israel. Some of them are descendants, relatives of Israel. They go back to Abraham and Lot. Others are just warring nations around them. But all of them have joined forces and their target is the little nation of Israel. And Israel is feeling the stress and the pressure and, 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 the, and the threat of these enemies. And they cry out to God, God, not just save us, but get rid of them. And when we hear that, it makes us a little bit nervous. You know, it's one of it, 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 it's one of those passages where we are trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. What we tend to do is equate these kinds of passages with something personal. I mean, that's always our, our first response when we read the scriptures. We're thinking to ourselves, "What does that mean to me? What is that? How does that speak into my life?" And and while that is that is certainly appropriate, often. This is a passage of Scripture that is really not speaking about the personal nature of opposition. It's not really speaking to that person hurt me. That circumstance is against me. I'm having a struggle in life. It's not so much personal as it is corporate. This is about the nation of Israel, God's people, feeling threatened. And crying out to God, don't let your people be eliminated. It really shouldn't surprise us that God's people are threatened and persecuted. That we see it throughout all of scripture. We see it throughout the history of the church and God's people. 
Because what's really happening here is that the evil one has gathered around him people who, who want to follow him and they are attacking God and God's people. And it is the most natural thing to, in living in this world in which evil has a relatively high amount of power that the evil one who hates God and everything associated with God does everything in his power to destroy the things and the people that are connected to God. It shouldn't be surprising that that is the, that is the desire of, of a being that hates God. And we see evil at work in the world over and over again. And Jesus talks about this to his disciples. In Matthew 24, he says, you're going to be arrested, persecuted, killed. You're going to be hated all over the world. Why? Because you're my followers. Because you're connected to me. And the evil one hates me. He's going to hate you. And it says, if the world hates you, remember, it hated me first. And since they persecuted me naturally, they're going to persecute you. It is the evil one at work in the world attempting to eliminate from the world God's people. And we have seen it over and over and over again throughout history. I think one of the things that is difficult for us, even knowing that and reading a passage like this, is that we tend to read it through 21st century Western eyes. We read this passage as people who have pretty high levels of freedom from threats. I don't know that any of us, I'd be surprised if any of us woke up this morning and thought, I wonder if the representative of our local government are going to be here looking to arrest people coming to church this morning. I doubt if any of us thought of when we decided to come to church, we're wondering, are our neighbors going to gather around the building and threaten us? We don't live with that. But it also makes me wonder how Christians in places like North Korea and Somalia and in Nigeria and in other places of the world where the threat is real and constant. And how they see this differently. For them, it's survival. Now, we have different threats that come against us here in this country. They may not be physical, but they come in other ways. Because the evil one is doing everything possible to try and eliminate and destroy the church. And this is a prayer of God to not let that happen. I do think it's interesting that the psalmist is not trying to hide his feelings. You know, sometimes we do that when we pray, right? I mean, we have these thoughts, we have these feelings inside of us, but they don't seem like we ought to say them out loud. That we ought to address them to God. It might make us look bad. God may say, really? I thought you were my follower. Why are you thinking, saying those kinds of things about other people? There's an honesty here in this prayer that I think is good. I mean, if we are thinking it, we might as well say it to God and get it out in the open. And he can help us deal with it. Because the alternative is to keep pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing it down until an explosion takes place. And usually in negative ways and in destructive ways. 
And it shouldn't surprise us that when we're praying about the enemies of God and his people, that those prayers would be emotionally charged. It shouldn't surprise us. I mean, we're talking about prayers to God to say, defeat evil in this world. There ought to be emotion to that. We ought to feel emotion about praying against the evil, the work of the evil one in the world. Because the alternative to that is to sit back and say, well, it doesn't really matter to me. If it doesn't affect me personally, why would I care? I don't care. Let the evil one do what he wants. doesn't matter to me. God's people care. God's people care about, about defeating evil in this world, whether it directly affects us or not. That's why we pray for the persecuted church. That's why we're interested in what's happening with the church around the world. Because we do care. And we're praying for God to to not allow evil to overcome his church. What we're really praying is for God to maintain his witness in this world. You will notice that in the last couple of verses, you get a, a little glimmer of hope from the psalmist. And he says in verse 16, disgrace them until they submit to your name. In verse 18, they will learn that you alone are called the Lord, that you alone are the Most High, supreme over all the earth. Lord, let us be a witness to them and to your power and to your greatness and to who you are, that they might see you and seek you and submit to you. In the ancient context, when nations battled one another, their mindset was not who has the biggest army and who has the strongest army, but whose God is the strongest. And in their mind, the battles are, are won on earth because of the way the battles are won in the heavens. And the psalmist is saying, Lord, let these nations know that you are God. Let them know that no matter what it looks like, no matter how big their armies are, you're still greater. It's fascinating to me that when the psalmist says in verses 9 to 12, talks about do what you did in the days of Midian and goes through these, some of these names that are not real familiar to us. He's referencing the two stories in, in the book of Judges, the story of Deborah and the story of Gideon. What intrigues me about that is that it's hard to find two less likely heroes in the history of God's people than Deborah and Gideon. I've been fascinated for a long time that in the middle of this, of this hyper-patriarchal culture, you have a story of two women who are leaders in Israel and a story in which the heroes in the, are women and the cowards are the men. I think it paints an interesting picture about God's kingdom. And Gideon, Gideon is so frightened of the Midianites, he has so little courage that when God appears to him, when the angel comes to him, he finds him in a wine press threshing wheat because he's afraid that if the Midianites see him, they'll steal his wheat. And God says to him, O mighty warrior, and Gideon had to be looking around saying, you're talking to me? 
I mean, these are the two most unlikely heroes in Israel's history. And yet, in this psalm, the psalmist says, do what you did and do now what you did then. Because what you did then was a huge miracle. And you can work even through the weakness of your people. Because of who you are. And the nations are going to look at us and say, they are the weakest group of people I've ever seen. And do they keep winning battles? Maybe it has something to do with their God. It is a prayer of faith that God who has done it in the past will do it again. It's, when you get to the New Testament, it is the message of revelation. When we get tied up in revelation about the prophecies and the numbers and trying to figure out all these things. But ultimately, the prophecy, the, the vision of revelation is to a persecuted church that the, the risen Christ wins. And we can bank on it. And when you know that, there is a level of confidence, not in ourselves, but in God. That evil will be defeated. It's what Jesus says to his disciples. That the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Not because of who the church is. But because of who God is. And this psalm is saying, God, don't let your witness disappear from this earth. Because if your witness disappears, how will anyone ever know who you are? How will anyone ever experience life with you and relationship with you if evil defeats your people? And we might say, well, even if that were to happen, God, has, God could do it other ways. God doesn't need his people. God doesn't need the church to accomplish his purposes. That may be true, but that isn't how God designed it. From the very beginning, God has designed his witness to be his people. He says to to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. You and your descendants are going to be my people, my witnesses. Paul writes to the Romans in chapter 10, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? And that's why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of messengers who bring good news. I mean, he's just reiterating what Jesus says to the disciples. The last words he speaks to them, You are my witnesses. The message of the kingdom rises and falls with the church. And in spite of how fallible and often unreliable the church is, it's Christ's church. And we are his witnesses. And our confidence and our prayers are rooted in the fact that God will never let his witness disappear from the earth. And when we know that confidence, when we begin to live in that confidence, we begin to understand the shift in how God works in the world. In the Old Testament, God is bringing his people to Jesus. He is preparing them for Jesus. 
It's hard for them to grasp it. And as they pray this prayer and sing this psalm, they are praying and singing from the perspective of what they know about God and what they know about the world and how God does things. But it's all leading to Jesus. And ultimately, God comes in Christ and says, this is how evil is defeated. By a little baby in a manger. And that baby dying on a cross. And the man on the cross rising from the dead. And the one who is risen ascending to heaven and coming back once again in glory. And when we begin to grasp that truth, the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 make sense. I've been asking myself the question, is it possible that this prayer of Psalm 83 might actually be an act of love? It doesn't seem like it when you read it. But isn't it loving to ask God to not let his witness disappear from the face of the earth? Isn't it a loving, a prayer rooted in love to say, God, defeat evil Remove evil, keep evil away from your people so that your people can be the purest witnesses possible in a world that desperately needs him. Crush the evil ones who are, who are destroying innocent lives and let your people bear witness to who you are in Christ Jesus. And yes, we can pray for God to, to work powerfully in this world from a spirit of hatred and vindictiveness. And sometimes I worry that we fall into that trap. But the prayer of Jesus is, Father, make us people who so love that we defeat evil. And we are a presence of your presence in the midst of a world wrestling with evil, just like Jesus. Maybe one of the great tests of our faith is to pray against evil without becoming evil ourselves. Maybe a great test of our faith is praying against persecution and and not becoming persecutors ourselves. Praying for a witness that not only has the mind of Christ, but the behavior and the actions and the spirit and the presence of Christ. Because ultimately, God's answer to Asaph's prayer is not a sword. It's a cross. It's a cross. And the question confronting us is, do we believe, do we believe enough in the way of Christ to be witnesses in the midst of a world absorbed with evil, to be witnesses for Christ? As we pray for the church to continue to invade and change and be the presence of Christ 
amidst the evil and the evil one in this world. Holy Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace to us. Even when we struggle to understand some things in your word, we pray that you will open our minds and our hearts. Father, thank you for the privilege of bearing witness to you, being your people, your presence, through the grace of Jesus. We ask for courage. We ask for faith. And we ask for a loving spirit. Through Jesus Christ. Amen.